0: Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to the Bahamas Politics Podcast. Man, it feels weird to say those words because it's been so long. How y'all doing, man? Thanks for tuning in. We are back officially after a very long but well-deserved hiatus. The last time you heard from us, we were interviewing the new leader of the Free National Movement, Mr. Michael Pintard, after the FNM's one-day convention. And it's funny because this episode is being recorded on almost the eve of the FNM second convention for the purpose of electing a deputy leader and chairman. But this episode is going to be a sort of recapping what has happened so far in this new Davis administration. But before we get into the meat of all of it, I'm Jason Brennan, your host here with co hosts Denzel Bazard. How you doing Denzel?
1: Great, as always glad to finally be back. Uh, Glad to be back with our listeners. Uh, yes sir we do apologize for that long wait but it's good to see you guys again and thank you for listening back in again with us
0: couldn't have said it better myself and our other co-host mr tate adderley what's up tate hello hello
2: Um, i'm happy to be here once again um i want to say welcome back and to our listeners thank you for listening in today and uh, i hope that we have a good conversation and i always enjoy the, the presence of both Chase and Denzel. So I'm happy to be here today to discuss what we have to
0: discuss, pretty much. Likewise. And it's not like things haven't been happening while we've been gone. But look, that general election sprint, that was quite the the endeavor to cover it, to comment on it while also exercising our own democratic rights. Those of us who were able to do so and didn't get surprised you know, and not on the voter register. I ain't looking at nobody in particular, but you know how it go. A lot of our listeners also had that same problem. But it's been a while. In fact, it's been about 154 days since the Davis administration, or should I say the Progressive Liberal Party, won the 2021 general election. And so we have a new opposition leader with Michael Pintard, a new prime minister, Philip Brave Davis, a whole new administration and a lot of things to talk about so guys let's jump right into it for those persons who are not in the Bahamas right now whether you don't live here and you're not from here or you're just one of those students kind of abroad how do you kinda read the temperature of the country right now how are people feeling about politics uh, about this administration from your own vantage point, and then we'll get into a little bit more of our our personal views. But let's sort of bring some context to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas right now. Where are we? I'm going to start with you, Denzel.
1: Well, right now, I believe that we, for the most part, are very apprehensive, especially if we're talking about uh, people our age, citizens our age, are very apprehensive about this new government because it's hard to see exactly where we are going to move forward from here, especially uh, still in the midst of a pandemic, uh, still seeing scandals like the DRA uh, debacle that we're going to, I believe, talk more about later on in this episode. Definitely. Um, but uh, I think the Baming public right now is just lost as to where we're headed. I don't think we definitively know how to feel about government right now. Fair enough. Tate, what do you think?
2: So I think Denzel made some great points. Uh, I think there's a sense of anxiety about this particular administration. But then at the same time, there is somewhat we are still in that honeymoon phase. Um, and I said that because looking at Facebook comments and when people, when we look at government stories in the media and persons tend to criticize them, we have certain persons in the comments uh, flocking to defend the government. Um, and so I think we're coming out of that uh, that honeymoon phase, really. And then we're going into a bit of a state of anxiety, whereas we don't know what's going to happen with this particular government. Um, and I think that some persons don't want to chance it and be cynical and other persons want to be optimistic. But overall, I think that's a sense of, of anxiety and they are unsure where we're going at this point. So I think things are not really calm, but they they ain't bad. But it's just like, I don't know what's gonna happen. So we're just waiting to see what happens, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree with both of you. The word I was gonna use was tepid, which is sort of like lukewarm. Usually when governments win, particularly by the margins that uh, a government like the Progressive Liberal Party won by, there's optimism, right? There's usually celebration because, obviously, it's a rejection of the former administration, whoever that is at the time. Um, but I didn't really notice a lot of that this time. Yes, obviously, PLPs were happy and f were disappointed. You expect that. But I think the average person was just like, all right, fine, new government, but the same challenges exist. Uh, we've got the pandemic, which has sort of ebbed and flowed. We have the cost of living. Oh my God, it, that in and of itself could be a whole episode. But people have real problems, and I don't think I've seen any kind of patience from the Bahamian public as it relates to solving those problems. And as it relates to thinking about politics, well, I can speak for myself. It's hard to not pay attention to politics, but I have been in a in a bit of a rut recently i i don't really like to see the normal victory lap that's coming from this current government i don't like to see the the posturing and defensiveness that's coming from the official opposition where they try to convince us that you know things wasn't that bad a year ago two years ago i think myself like most people are just very like all right Enough of this, man. Wake me up when something happens. Wake me up when my life is easier. Wake me up when the minimum wage goes up, when my job is stable, when the cost of living goes down, blah, blah, blah. Of course, it isn't how politics works, but that's my assessment of where we
1: are. And see, uh, that's, that's the thing as well. Uh, there are so many Bahamians, especially our age. I always have to say that because I have been speaking in spaces with uh, young Bahamians our age as well uh they they aren't really they aren't really receptive to this whole honeymoon phase that we have with the PLP. Well, with any party, it's not necessarily just that it is the PLP, but any party that takes on power, they don't want to see the pageantry and all of that. They want to actually see results because people yeah, are actually. That's hurt. a good
0: word, pageantry.
1: So I think it's important for the PLP party right now to actually show results to the Bahamian people, especially young Bahamians.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of showing results, one of the topics we have to discuss tonight is press access under the Davis administration. So this might be mind boggling to persons who aren't from the Bahamas, but the concept of a press secretary, like we've seen, I'll just use the example of the United States, right? Where you have somebody who acts as this representative of government. They're not necessarily in the government themselves, but they speak to the media, they answer questions, and they bring persons from the administration on to respond to queries the public might have. That concept has not been fully realized in the country until this administration, and that was a campaign point for the PLP. So Press Secretary, Clint Watson, who you may remember from beyond the headlines on Eyewitness News before the election is, is the guy that's kind of spearheading the government's media strategy of course as well as mr latre ramming good friend of mine the director of communications in the office of the prime minister and that approach has generated some i don't want to say controversy but it's been very much talked about particularly with the backdrop of our former prime minister not being the kind of guy who liked to receive questions from the press i you know in, in some cases in the election he actively avoided the press i think that's fair to say and that's so, wild
1: to that's mm-hmm. wild to me because he is very talkative right now
0: <laughs> yeah you would never believe that that's what was going on but oh man yeah, it's hard to describe, again, if you're not here right now, but seriously, the former Prime Minister, Dr. Hubert Minas, is in the news every day and speaking forcefully. Anyway, uh, course, let, me, speaking let me, all the time,
1: <laughs> speaking all the time, because apparently he did not have a voice when he was the prime minister of the country, but now he could speak every day You on the I... radio every morning. That's wild. That's ridiculous to me.
0: It is ridiculous. And I'm one of those persons that believes that when you're elected, you should be accountable to the people you serve. So I'm going to applaud this administration for making an effort. But it hasn't come without some, in my view, mistakes uh, and definitely scrutiny, as you just said, Tate. I mean, just the other day, we had a situation where the the members of the press were outside of the office of the prime minister for some hours in the hot sun, waiting to get some stories from cabinet ministers, and uh, they had cones blocking their entrance. Now, we were told later that those cones were just a you know a normal safety protocol because of the dignitaries and the officials that were in the building at the time. And of course, the cabinet building is well a pile of rubble downtown right now. So cabinet was meeting at OPM, and then. OPM's uh, press director, communications director, sorry, Mr. Browning and Clint Watson come out later to say, oh, well, you know, we we were just we want to get you all in the AC. We want to get you all uh," I don't even remember what the explanation was, but the point of the entire thing was the optics of it just seemed so messy. And I can say that about a few instances with this government in the communications department. But I don't know, that could just be me.
2: So I, I think I, I have an interesting view on, you know, this this idea of press press access during the this administration, right? I think that we are so happy about it because we're looking at in comparison to what Minis did and how he was with the press. However, mm-hmm. I don't know if these press briefings are actually helpful um, because... When I actually watch them, it seems as though that when we talk to these public officials and we talk to politicians as well, they don't properly answer the questions, right? Um, and then when certain questions are asked, asking for certain figures, Clinton would say that, oh, he's going to come up for, for a figure, right? I think it was about two weeks ago I was watching it and Jasper was asking about a question regarding the expenses on Bahama as well as the expenses on uh, the Dubai trip. And Clint wasn't able to give her an answer on that. So, while I'm thankful for the appearance of access, right, I'm starting to see that these aren't actually what I think what we're supposed to be getting. And I think what we get up what we get at the end of the day is basically we polish and we package government propaganda, government and public relations, and that's what I see there. To be honest. Now, I don't know if you all feel that way, but that's how I'm feeling with this particular administration.
1: Okay, i'm I'm trying to choose. I'm trying to choose my words very carefully. Uh, I believe the establishment of the press secretary was in response to, uh, I mean, just the fact that. The leader of the PLP party may not necessarily be a natural speaker in terms of releasing press statements. Can we just be you blunt he's not, yeah, not, not i'm not even I'm not even commenting
0: on the quality of what he says. It's just that clearly this doesn't come naturally to him.
1: Right. You can be a great leader and not a great speaker i I'm still working on my speech as well myself, um, but um I believe that's why it was established. Now, in its establishment, you also have to try, I mean, at least attempt not to be in conflict of interest when you see the Dubai travel and you see the Shabak Choir being uh, traveled to uh, Dubai. And, you know, the press secretary is a member of that or a leader of that choir. When we have the National Youth Choir, National Children's Choir, National Boys Choir as well. I think just for optics' sake, why not just go with the National Youth Choir rather than Shabbat? Things like that. You know,
0: I was avoiding commenting on this, not really Not really, because it's an old story, but because so much has been said about it, right? The idea that the press secretary of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas can also get to lead a a gospel choir delegation to Dubai to perform at this cultural expo that the Bahamas had been preparing for, for years, over a national youth choir that was established for that very purpose, is ridiculous. And I'm not saying that Mr. Watson should not have gone to Dubai. Uh, However, I am firmly of the view that if you are going to be the press secretary of the Bahamas, then be the press secretary. You don't double dip. And I understand that the group Shabak was not paid for their performance, but that was kind of OPM's way of skirting around the obvious truth, which is that most of those delegates, uh, sorry, most of the members of the delegation received accommodations. You know, they still had the opportunity to fly to Dubai to... I think it should have been considered a business trip, but I'm not sure that everybody who went on there on the government's dime treated it that way. You know, and I don't want to be negative Nancy because at the end of the day, I support my Bahamian artists and my creatives. If you got a choir, I have no problem with you going to Dubai. I have a problem with Clint Watson leading the choir and also being press secretary because that didn't have to happen. But, you know, I, I leave that right there, though, because I think that issue has kind of been been talked about a lot but also I was choosing my words carefully because I'm very careful about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater I think that it is a good thing that we have press briefings as often as we do and I think it is a good thing maybe this is in contrast to some of my friends in journalism I don't think the press should expect if they walk up to a cabinet minister randomly like say in the food store I don't think they should expect a comprehensive answer from said cabinet minister. Now, I think they have the right to do it. I think that uh, if a cabinet minister is smart, he will or she will handle that interaction with grace. But we do need to move to a more formal system, in my view, which I think this government is trying to do, of proper rooms for this stuff, proper occasions, and a proper and fair opportunity for all accredited media houses to ask their questions and get substantive answers. But I think, Tate, to your point, we're not seeing the substantive answers part of it.
2: Right. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think the system is good, like you said, but it ultimately depends on uh, the people, the, the politicians and, and and the public officials. I mean, I don't want to be blunt, but you know, I just think some of them are not that smart. Um, unfortunately and that 's just i 'm smart, but you know <laughs> but i i I just think that some of them are very much so incompetent and 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 they can 't answer these types of questions but you know i overall i 'm thankful for the formal system that we have that they 're trying to build now. I just hope that as time progresses uh you know our politicians will be able to answer these questions with, with sense. Um, but even so, that's becoming more difficult now with what is happening with this particular administration and the, the poaching of the, the media core. So it's, it's interesting, right? So you have a system, you're trying to create for people to have access, but at the same time, you are essentially breaking down, not really breaking down, but like poaching people from bad profession to come into your government And then at the same time, expect to bring proper press access when you're just breaking down the the profession. So I I, I'm I'm concerned about outcomes, right? You're doing one thing and doing the other. Will this actually work? So I can't fully say as yet. Um, But I'm I'm sitting back and I'm just see what happens with what comes out of this 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 whole debacle with the press and and the government.
0: Yeah, uh, the poaching of the press corps, for those who may not be familiar, we have seen, interestingly, some very high-profile members from the popular media houses around here receive good-paying, presumably, government jobs in places like OPM, Office of Prime Minister, and even Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the questions circulating that are, okay, cool. We've got persons leveling up in a sense, right? It's not like anybody's questioning the competence of the persons that were hired. Definitely not, at least not from me. But some people are saying, well, this is a bit curious. If you give everybody a good job who may have otherwise had some freedom to criticize you, it's fair that someone is going to say, well, maybe you're trying to silence those people. Uh, And I don't think, the government is going to respond to that claim right and again picking my words carefully because these are talented bahamians i don't i can't stress that enough these are people who are deserving of great opportunities and for great things to happen to them but it seems suspicious and i i can't disagree with anybody who comes to that conclusion that's just democratic discourse but i i think as we talk about what has happened with press relations with this government? I think it's appropriate to think of some of the highlights and lowlights during these first 154 days post the PLP's victory. So, Tate, you can go first. What do you think has been the highlight of Davis's tenure as prime minister so far? If you can choose one incident or one particular issue.
2: That's a good question. Um, and I don't want to sound <laughs> cynical, but nothing really comes to mind, Jace. <laughs> Sorry.
0: That's your opinion.
2: I,
1: I mean I can't you for your opinion.
2: One thing that I am thankful for is that his his approach to the pandemic. Um and I, I always talk about this in, in my freedom school freedom schools presentations, right? The system that we were under under the minister administration was, for lack of a better word, very weird and strange. And it allowed for plenty of abuses of power. And I was afraid of that in many cases, right? And so I am thankful um, for this particular administration to try to curb the pandemic through parliamentary rules and the emergency health rules that they came with. I'm thankful for that. Um, and uh, I understand that sometimes there is a need uh, to... I'm not going to say that, but I understand the minister's administration's approach to it. Um, but we have to be careful with, with giving that power to certain people. And even so, I think altogether, we should take the power away from the prime minister, in my opinion. But I am thankful for this particular administration's approach to the pandemic. And in a sense, trying to allow people to have jobs, allow people to you know have economic activity and freedom. So why have not feel a bit more free? Because when I looking with people who, they talked about how their whole savings were wiped out, they lost jobs, they lost their businesses. But I think that thinking about that and looking hindsight, I would say that I'm, I'm more appreciative of the, the Davis administration for his approach to the pandemic and his approach to handling it with a more, I don't want to say laissez-faire, but a more free approach. You wanna start what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I do. What do you think, Denzel? Oh my my opinion on uh what their best thing has been so far for the administration. Yeah. Uh well I mean they started off I mean they hit the ground running. They started off well. Uh they went to the UN and talked about the climate change agreements. And I mean it sounded I mean, well obviously we know that no prime minister we have no matter which party it is right now is actually going to do anything significant for climate change in our current economic climb and our socio-political and socio-economic um environment right now uh so but i mean it was it, w- it was at least good to see him there so we started off very strong uh started off strong by saying well we want to get more women in politics but i mean it it gets it, it gets a bit cloudy when you have him defending somebody like fox who admitted to oh, human trafficking i forgot about that right afterwards so how can you be a defender of women and right afterwards in the same breath let's say you defend somebody who has admitted openly admitted to human trafficking
0: Oh man, it's amazing the things you take for granted in politics, right? That just become normal because that's up my mind. That's a definite low light. Yeah, most definitely. Highlight. I I'm kinda with Tate on this one. I have to give the Davis administration credit. While I don't think the messaging from the top has been to my personal liking about the urgency of taking your vaccine, of uh understanding that this thing is not over. I do love the overall communication strategy for dealing with the pandemic. I saw a commercial the other day that finally told people that the mask is supposed to go over the nose and you got to pinch the middle to keep it on. You know, something as simple as that, that we actually did not go through the trouble of teaching people early on in this pandemic. And I still see people not understanding you got to do that. The idea that, um, or not idea, but the implementation of free testing, you know, it it seemed like it rolled out during the middle of our fourth wave with Omicron, but when it came out, it worked flawlessly. And I have many friends of mine who who were able to access that free testing at, I think it was Malia Hotel, got in and out, and it was fine. That's good news. The fact that even though people complained when the Dextadaps concert was not approved, because, and even when that Dext Adapts thing happened, our case numbers were low in the country, right? I give the government credit for standing their ground and saying, no, you can't have 2,000 people at a concert. I don't care how good the situation is right now. It can explode at a moment's notice, and we don't have the capacity in the healthcare system, although I, I respect the effort to bring some cuban nurses on we don't have the capacity to deal with another surge should it happen same thing with the carnival thing
2: Jace, okay, I, I have a question yeah i have a question for you jace um carnival can we? well i, I think you were just about to say it, but can we say that in light of the doja concert happening
0: yeah okay so my thing with the doja concert i appreciate people on social media who are like Yeah, it's the hotel. It's Atlantis. Atlantis can do whatever they want in this country. We've been knowing this. But I do agree that it is hypocritical, particularly for this administration, to have what appears to be one set of rules for the hotels and another set for things happening outside of the hotel grounds. Now, this is my very, very nuanced opinion on it. I don't think it's right. And I think the government having campaigned while in opposition against what they called ministers favoritism towards those business owners and, and private enterprises. It's hypocritical, but I do understand why <sighs> I do understand why they don't view it as the same level of risk. Because hotels have different levels of protocols and the amount of people or I should say the the contingent of people who are going to events on those properties I don't think it's fair to say that the majority of them are bahamians and therefore they are not going back into our community and contributing to community spread so I don't know if this is making sense but as much as I think we need to stop treating hotels like they're the golden child I Don't think they are an apples to apples, the hotels to a general event outside of a hotel's grounds. Don't think it's an apples to apples comparison.
1: But I I mean, to to that point, Jason, uh, you'd have to say that, well, what, 51% or maybe more than that of our population is employed by hotel industries. So they would be interacting with those tourists and they would be going back into the community. That's fair. Not fair. Yeah, I don't have a rebuttal for
0: it because I think this whole situation sucks and at the risk of sounding like Denzel, we need to move away from having tourism as our number one industry. We all know this. Listen,
1: and there's I can't I, I have to I probably have to learn five new languages. <laughs> I've been saying this over and over again. Tourism is not sustainable. We've already seen that it's not sustainable. We have to move away from our dependency on tourism. Now, how we move away from that, that's something we have to get together to talk about. I don't have the answer for that right now, but we do have to move away from tourism and our, our stringent dependency on tourism.
0: Speaking of urgent needs, let's talk a little bit about the Disaster Reconstruction Authority and what's been happening in the news there. Now, let me see if I can break this down for our listeners. We have the new chairman chairman, manager of the Disaster Disaster Reconstruction Authority, Mr. Alex Storr, talking about his predecessor, K. Forbes Smith, an FNM. Alex Storr is a PLP. And he is alleging that all kinds of malfeasance happened under her predecessor's tenure and that essentially they didn't do nothing in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian, which devastated both the islands of Grand Bahama and Abaco. K. Forbes Smith is currently involved in a lawsuit against the government to receive the bulk, if not all, of what she views as payments owed to her. Uh because she was did did she resign? Was she fired? I'm not sure. She was definitely removed, though, as DRA chair when the PLP administration took office. So she's trying to get in excess of four hundred thousand dollars like hey, I wasn't supposed to be fired, I'm owed these funds. And Alex Storr is trying to say, well, you won, you shouldn't have been making all that money anyway, and you did a bunch of foolishness under your watch. And in the middle, of course, is poor, broken, and battered Abaco and Grand Bahama. Like, where are my houses, where are my roads, where's my infrastructure? I think that's a a decent breakdown. But I'll leave it open to you all to discuss not necessarily who's right, but your takes on this.
1: I mean, we are, we, well, no, I'll let, I'll let you go first. So,
2: Yeah. I was, I was going to say that I, there's many things to say about this whole situation with the
1: DRA, right?
2: I think one of the most important things is that I always question the, how these things come out and uh, you know, the purpose of it. I always think that when certain scanners come out, it's, it's a distraction, uh, for the ruling party, that's just my thing. I think about that all the time. But on on on, on the whole of it, um, I think it kind of categorizes our culture, um, and how essentially. And I said this on last week with when I was on the show with Jones. Is that how party politics is? Who is now like... ambassador to the United States? By the way, <laughs> who is exactly right? And, you know, it's like it's it's a disease to the state. It's, it's a disease to the population, right? And so at the top, we have these persons getting high salaries. And then when it comes to doing the actual work and actually being effective, then nothing happens. No work happens. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, forget the details of it. Forget who did what. Forget which party did what. It's always us, the people, the behemoth people suffering at the boot of these parties. And so... Yes, the DRA happened. is just another example of corruption and, and malfeasance and misfeasance. Um, but it, it just shows, and we continue to see the culture of what party politics is in the Bahamas. And that's what I think of it when I think of the whole DRA
0: situation. Danzo?
1: No, I just think it was complete malfeasance. You're saying malfeasance and misfeasance. But I mean, for you to, I mean, after everything that's happened to the people in Abaco, and the people in Freeport, Grand Bahama, how how do you then, knowing that you have not done enough to help those people affected, say that you are still owed these monies? I mean, beyond the fiscal point of it, beyond what you're supposed to be uh, uh, what you're supposed to be paid out, how how can you go home, kiss your kids on the forehead, and then sleep soundly every night? knowing that you're asking for money when all those people are still trying to get their lives back together and you've not done enough for them for them to at least scrape their lives back together. That's, that's sick. That's sick. Yeah, I agree with you. That's
0: my main take on it. It's not about, oh, is she owed this money legally through a contract? I haven't seen the contract, and even if I did, I'm not qualified enough to say which way that should go. And, of course, she has a right to go to court for it. But I also have the right, as a citizen, to be like, what are you doing? $400,000 that you think are owed to you as a result of this. Meanwhile, these people cannot get 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 straight. I'm sorry. It just feels like that $400,000 could be better spent instead of going to your pockets. Your government lost. You're not there anymore. It happens. This is what happens when you're a political appointee. And I'm not even saying that she's not competent or qualified. I don't know her qualifications. But I do know that when governments change, usually you do the right thing and just step aside gracefully instead of trying to make it all about you or, or, and whatnot, particularly on this issue, right? If you are a technocrat who happened to be an FNM or a PLP, that's different.
1: But, dude, that, that ain't what's happening here. I don't think so, at least. At least, if you have done your job properly, for Christ's sake, there's right. still people hurting in those countries, and sorry, in those uh, Christ, sorry, in those islands. Yeah, and, and it, it almost it almost feels that way, doesn't it? That it's a whole another country, the way that it we don't does. speak about it. Um, nah. but, but yeah. So for them to for her to uh, to be making that claim, I think is extremely tone deaf. At the very least, Mm -hmm. at the very, very, very least. I'm with you.
0: So tone deaf, (laughs) I hate that a certain minister for the government came to my mind when I thought, when I heard that word or phrase, but can we talk about police misconduct and police brutality and gender violence and, 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 and yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the country as of late. Oh God! Oh God!
1: Listen, I, I've I've been disappointed with the with certain actions of the Minister of National Security because I know uh, I, I have worked with him personally, and I thought that we were moving in another direction. But it, I mean, I believe that is just to confirm that the government is really just there to support uh, the powers that be, especially within the policing community because the policing community is so, uh, so solidly established now that I don't think we are actually going to be able to do much to actually change the way that they do decide to police. Loaded answer, Dave.
2: Yeah, I, I... I would say on, on Mr. Wayne Roosevelt Monroe, I'm very much disappointed in him as a minister. I think at the beginning of his tenure as the Ministry of National Security, he would have done some good things like getting rid of the, um, the, the what is it, the bank lane shuffle. No, and, and I thought that was, that was a good indicator of things of what were to come. And then when... Uh, we had the killing of the Marine, the RBDF Marine, for him to go on television and say that he doesn't understand why Bahamans would have public mistrust in the police.
0: And say it I right. It was... That Marine was killed by, was it an off-duty?
1: It was, off du- it was off-duty. And there's, there's, been a, there, there's been a large spate of off-duty shootings as well. Off-duty members question... of the
0: Royal Bahamas Police Force killing people.
1: But then uh, why do you have your service weapon when you're out drinking as well? And it usually is out when they're at a bar somewhere. So why do you have your service weapon on you? Real good question.
2: I mean, and and those are good questions, right? And so, you know, I, I don't think that I believe that Bahamians cannot imagine a future without policing, right? Oh, the policing that we have today. Um, but at the same time, we really distrust police as well. Um, but I am down for, and I don't want to sound American, but I, I am down. No, for, say
0: it. I know what you can say.
2: I am down for a discussion of defunding the police.
1: Um, and defunding, I'm, I'm I'm down for the discussion of straight up abolition. We would have to start with the. We'd have to start with defunding, obviously, because if you say abolition over here, nobody could. You you have to start somewhere you you know just how you move, how you move the Overton window theory you have to move one step at a time to shift it either to the right or to the left it's the same thing uh with policing i believe we'd have to start with the funding and then move on to abolition but the we have to there's so many different steps that we have to take with uh policing as well uh you have to, you have to word it very properly with the public there's a certain way you have to, to word it with the public you can't just say we're going to the police the first thing they're going to say you have to understand the police are very well funded. Extremely well. So they're going to lobby. They're going to be able to lobby against that. So the next thing people are going to say is, "Well, you just want criminals roaming free." They're going to. Yeah, that's what they're going to say. Going to bring up every criminal case where somebody got killed, stuff, blah blah blah, and not really understand what it means to defund and abolish the police and to stop policing rather than actually protecting the community. All I gotta say is, Alia Me was
0: right was and is right. Uh I had a conversation on Twitter with her about that phrase, you know, defund not defund, um abolish the police, I think, or even defund the police, one of the two. And I was saying that you know, from my marketing and communications background, I don't blame someone who has that idea in their heart but says I can't say that to people cuz that's going to scare some voters away. I don't blame them for that because it's a scary proposition. And as soon as you're explaining in politics, oftentimes you're losing because people have very strong feelings uh, about what is normal in society and what is expected. And the idea that you should defund the police does not sound normal. So I get why people would be scared of it. But in the same breath, I also admit that the RBPF is considered to be and rightfully so, a joke. It's not like it's not like the overwhelming perception of the police in this country is positive, defending the community, making sure criminals are off the street. No, you ask people what they think about the RBPF and they could be like, well, I can't, I can't cuss on this. But when I think of them, I'm thinking of these big overweight dudes in khakis swinging around, stick, walking the beat. Like, that's supposed to stop criminals on the street, you know? And I understand, look, I got friends in the force, right? It's not all like that. But you know the phrase about a few bad apples spoil the bunch? And I don't know if it's a few either. But look, the current status quo of the RBPF, not only is it not sustainable, it's unacceptable. And we should be able to say that.
2: And, you know, I, I agree with you, Jace, but I, I... I've been noticing something over the past few days, right? It's like, And this is since, since the beginning of the year, but I've been hearing more sirens. But while I live behind the police, the CDU, but even on the road, every day I've noticing them stopping more people on the road in the night. And so, you know, I don't want to sound dramatic, but, you know, I'm kind of becoming concerned of whether you becoming a state whereas police are going to become more involved in our lives right and knowing the conduct of these people i'm afraid of that i think they're stupid and then <laughs> I'm sorry i i just think they they're not sensible people um and living in the bahamas where they're going to be more involved in my lives and and more present i'm afraid of that i don't want to see you um and so i don't know the, the police over here are weird
1: are terrible. If they are non-functional. They're ineffective. I've s i have mean you you y'all seen, y'all follow me on Twitter. Y'all y'all know what I said about the police. I just said the other day the same thing they just said um just now. They have so many bodies that they can throw to make sure that people are getting ticketed for licenses, but you call nine one nine right now and they can't send an emergency vehicle to your to your property to help you out. So they are not here to help the public. They're here to protect private wealth and the government.
0: And on top of that, I let's circle back to Wayne Monroe. I want, I want the smoke at the moment. What I was pissed off about, now, Wayne Monroe is a blunt guy, right? And he speaks, in my opinion, like he's not a politician. He speaks like a lawyer, which he is. He speaks from the position of defending his client. It just so happens that right now his client is not necessarily the people who put him in that office, right? And I think that's where the fundamental conflict is happening. But when you have a minister of national security talking about, and I'm talking about Heavenly's murder now, right? Saying that had she, you know, been more urgent, in her complaints to the police about her safety had she mentioned that you know the now deceased baby daddy i don't even want to call his name was actively threatening her family members right had she said that the police would have sprung into action a little bit sooner but because she didn't the man was able to come up to her house and kill her and then kill himself i mean Beyond the fact of, that's a BS excuse, what compels you to say that to a country, not just a family, a country that is mourning this tragedy and loss? I just, I, I, I don't get it and I rarely get frustrated to the point of, of just seeing red, but when it comes to violence against women and children, The way that we are so reactive as a country, and we've already, Heavenly is already out of our minds. That's not a part of the national discourse right now, because that's how we go as people. That stuff pisses me off. And I cannot stand that the Minister of National Security, in this sense, was a part of the problem.
1: And you remember the episode that we did when we said, say less, when we were talking about uh, mental health as well. Um, that was early uh, 2021, I believe. But um, it's it's the same thing. Uh, it's, it's You have to address the Bahamian public a certain way. But I think uh, with the Heavenly Story as well, uh, we again see how ineffective the police actually are. People keep saying that police stop crime. The police do not stop crime. They react to crimes. There's nothing that they do that stops crimes. If anything, over-policing just causes more recidivism in our prisons so for the public to and and i know if you ask most of the public they're gonna say i know the police definitely stop crime that's what they do that's their job but that's because the police have just been on a huge pr campaign for let's say decades probably more than that now so what we have to do is we have to re-educate the public and it is going to take time i think that's one thing people don't want to lobby long enough against the police it's going to take time to re-educate the public as to why the police are so detrimental so what we have to do is we have to take time we have to uh, let people know why the the defund the defunding and sorry and the abolition of police would be beneficial to our society so it's going to take time it's going to take literature uh, it's going to take outreach
0: marketing personnel jumping back in right here I want to emphasize again on this police subject the police are terrible as constructed but the idea of the police i don't think necessarily has to be discarded now it may be a casualty uh it's been so long that we've had these negative feelings and look if you don't have negative feelings uh towards the police i, don't, I, I, I that's concerning right i don't know what positive experiences you've had in your life i guess i'm thankful that you've had them But most people I know have not had positive interactions with the police, right? This concept of the police as we know it needs to change. And we need to be able to associate the police with safety, with community partnerships, with social healing, all of these positive things. And it just doesn't have to be this way. And I think that's the message that we need to preach. It doesn't have to be this way. This doesn't have to be normal. And certain persons on the force right now who are trying to do their best in spite of the overall reputation of their bunch, you know, you can be a part of that too. The rest of you, I don't to talk to you. Sorry.
2: <laughs> um, I remember one time, and I don't want to call people up, but we were having a discussion about police and that there was this one uh, police guy on the, on the TL. And it was just so interesting to see him talking about how we need the police and how or when we uh, bad things happen to us we got to call the police but i'm like that's that's what that's what it's for but then when it comes to that they can't even do that and they can't even protect us and they don't even protect us uh, and in fact they 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 enact violence against his own citizens right i remember last year i don't think it was last year but it, either last year or this year paul roe talking about how uh, there were like 21 police-involved shootings and 13 people died. And those persons that uh, uh, reti- you, retaliated or, or enacted violence against the police, that they're stupid. I'm like, how do you get off as a commissioner of police say that? I mean, I don't know if you all know, but <laughs> he sounds like what, uh, like Duterte in, in the Philippines. And, and 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 that's a bad comparison. But him just saying that right there, he, he sounds like Duterte, and Duterte is is famous for killing drug dealers and killing drug users in the Philippines. So I am not comfortable with the commission of police using that type of language towards his citizens. And it's it's concerning, once again, of how the force is going to look under his leadership.
0: Good point. All right, so we've been recapping some of the things and venting a little bit during this episode. I want to wrap up with perhaps the most urgent issue of our time at the moment, which is cost of living. Uh, I don't know about y'all. I am getting ready to move out and move into a new place. And I am dreading the grocery runs that I'm going to have to make as a single person living by himself. Because it seems like everywhere you look, Things are going up, 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 and yet there seems to be no relief in sight. Now, what is happening, interestingly, on the political side of things is you have on one hand the Minister of Economic Affairs, who is Mr. Michael Alquides, saying, look, inflation, it's a global problem, and there's very little the government can do to address it. But you had Prime Minister Davis, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, kind of coming out saying, we're going to mobilize as many resources as the government of the day, to help address this problem, right? And I'm not really sure if those two statements are in conflict, but it seems like it on the surface of things. All I, (laughs) you know, all I know is I want a plan as a citizen that doesn't have a choice in whether or not he has to eat at the end of the day. And look, I'm not gonna lie, it's not like I am on the bottom of the rung as it relates to income. I definitely ain't up there. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna find a way to make it, but it's gonna hurt. So I can only imagine the people who were barely getting by before this inflation uh wave rocked us.
2: So I I, I was listening to Hakitas and when it comes to Hakitas, um it's it's concerning, and I hate to use this word more than once, but it's concerning when we have a Minister of Economic Affairs saying that we can't do nothing about inflation. And that, to me, that kind of signals two things. Either you don't care, or either you are incapable or not interested in trying to come up with ways and trying to relieve the cost, the, the, the effects of inflation, inflation, which is price rises, right? Um, and... I was kind of surprised when it came to uh, the prime minister. It was yesterday. I think it was talking about, you know, that we're going to try and do something about the prices. But in that, they are one of the key influences as to why prices are so high. Uh, I was I was reading an article and it was talking about the price of gas. And uh, this guy was basically talking about the distribution of what goes into price. And essentially, when it comes to, the price essentially government is one of the main causes of why prices are so high because we have duty and then taxes on top of that and yeah. uh, but unfortunately we have built up the system on protectionism and duty rates and so on that you know you got to pay wages to government workers you got to pay uh, social services for people and so we we have built this system on taxing behaviors for consuming, and. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's a very smart idea. But at the same time, we don't produce anything. But I think when people say that, that's sort of a cop-out and say that we should keep things remaining the way that they are. Um, and people use that to talk about why should we should keep tourism as well. But I think it's, it's a cop-out and to say that, hey, we should just keep things the way they are. But I think there are some things that we can do. Um, but at the same time, we have to be very smart about it and we have to maybe possibly pull some punches. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see what the Davis administration does. I um, anxious to see whether it's really effective. And, uh, you know, it tells me that, that the 10% VAT was ineffective. Um, but if you were smart about it, if you were a smart policymaker, you would have seen um, that inflation was coming. And you could have seen that the 10% VAT was going to be ineffective and useless. And so that's just my take on it.
0: I did see in the news today, in in fairness, that apparently there was some kind of ban on importing beef from Canada that's been lifted recently, which is supposed to help drive prices down. I don't know if it'll actually do that, but, you know, that's something, I guess. Denzel?
1: Well, I mean, when we talk about cost of living, we have to... I mean, we obviously have to talk about minimum wage. So, yes, we can talk about inflation as well, but we do have to raise our minimum wage. Our minimum wage in a country that's what the fifth highest cost of living in the world uh, is. not. It's 210 a week, right? It's not livable. It is 210 a week, and that's not livable in the fifth highest cost of living country in the world. That's, 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 that's insane. And then when we have people like Rupert Roberts uh, saying that, well, all has got to do is budget, but he's always raising prices every time that fat is lowered. Th- that man is a Marvel villain. You have to understand, like, he's a real life villain. The man saying, oh, y'all have to budget, but you raise your prices when fat is lowered so Bahamas can afford to eat. I'm sorry, have you met a Bahamian mother? Have you met a Bahamian mother with multiple
0: kids, just one of them? Who budgets better than a Bahamian mummy? Making breakfast, stretch and all. Look, that is ingrained in us, and I ain't going to let nobody disrespect our Bahamians like that. We can budget, you know. It's just, how are you supposed to budget a dollar?
1: It's still a dollar
0: at the end of the day. We we got to stop insulting people in this country, man. And I see now the business community, you know, dollars $210 be. but i am seeing people in the business community at some the, of the upper to mid, upper middle class and upper class bahamians complaining talking about you know when you raise minimum wage everybody else is going to ask for a pay increase yes yes they're going to and yes they should i mean what is i know what
1: is wrong with that and see we we've adopted i keep saying this as well i mean y'all pro- y'all well y'all know me y'all I, y'all probably seen me say this before but we've adopted this We've, we've, we've adopted this individualist attitude from America, I believe, as well. And we're saying, well, if they get to eat, are you sure I still can eat? And that's such, a, that's such a selfish way of thinking. I have no problem eating a bit less if that means my neighbor gets to mm-hmm. eat enough.
0: What a great quote. I don't know if you stole that from somewhere or if you made that, but hey, print that on a shirt. Uh, listen, I agree with you. I think we're learning bad habits from the US. Uh, On that note, (laughs) Facebook, my favorite app, as everybody on this podcast knows. I've been seeing some rhetoric coming up recently where persons on that other blue app seem to believe that we need to be reducing restrictions, not reducing, removing all restrictions in the country as it relates to COVID. Uh, If you didn't know, It's actually illegal to be outside in the country without wearing a mask. I know that's wild to people who live in the US, but yeah, you have to wear a mask. Um, Obviously, there's a push for persons to get vaccinated and there's still restrictions on um, persons coming into the country in terms of they need to take certain tests. And of course, the events that we spoke about earlier, they're limited by capacity. And there are people on the other blue app saying, yeah, man, the rest of the world is moving on from this pandemic. Places like the UK uh, are dropping all of their requirements and the Bahamas needs to follow suit. I don't know what country I live in, guys, but it's not the United Kingdom that has a healthcare system that can handle more than a dozen COVID patients. But I don't live in that country. I live in the Bahamas, (laughs) where, where... one person catching COVID is a big deal because they've probably spread it to persons who can't pay for health care. And even if they could, our healthcare care product in this country is substandard. Even if you could pay for it, it just ain't on par with a first world country. So this idea that we need to drop restrictions because other big countries are doing it. We are not a big country. I just want to scream that from the mountaintop. But, you know, I don't post on that app no more.
2: No, I, I I think you I think you made a great point because it, it always comes up persons tend to like compare us to other countries, i.e. Singapore. Like they want to say that we could be a Singapore, but they don't take into account You mean a dictatorship? Yeah, like like Lee Kuan Yew was a dictator. He was he was the dictatorial prime minister. But you know, I, I don't like when Bahamians do that, right? And then adding to that that healthcare thing is that I'll I'll our economy is dependent on tourism and uh, tourism is is very vulnerable. And then even with that case, when we have persons continue coming into the country who could possibly bring COVID in, we have to be careful. And so I think it's not, it's, it's not a good idea to compare ourselves to places like the, the UK and the U S when uh, their economies are in a sense, sort of stable and and they don't have to depend on vulnerable or susceptible Industries, but at the same time, I I would also add that personally, me, I would talk for myself. I do not feel as restricted as I had under the Minis administration. So I do not get the understanding as to why persons may feel as though, um, you know, we need to move remove restrictions. I get kind of mad when we talk about COVID tests and traveling. But, you know, I traveled a lot last year. I don't know how I've traveled this much this year. But at the same time, you know, the government has provided for free testing. Um, And although it is kind of limited on certain islands, I think we're seeing, although we're under a restrictive system, it's becoming more easier and easier to live as we have free testing. And so, and then there's an option to get the vaccine as well. So, I don't understand where this one to free up the, the country somewhere comes from. That's just me.
1: In terms of our vaccination, I mean, uh, how do you, uh, y'all feel hopeful about it? I... Aren't
0: we? Isn't it like, yeah. oh, four in 10 Bahamians are fully vaccinated? Something pitiful like that? Dude, we've, we've plateaued. We've plateaued. And I was hoping we'd get to 60, but nah, it seems like we're stopping there.
1: I'm very much disillusioned with it because as soon as we could, we opened our borders back up, let tourists back in, and then we touted that as some huge accomplishment. We have tourists coming back in because, again, our reliance on tourism, not to sound like a broken record again, but I mean, as soon as they came back in, we got numbers spiked again because, of course, we did. And now we're here in this same endless cycle. So I am not hopeful. I keep wearing my mask. I think my my the skin on my hands probably is more sanitized than it is actual skin at this point. So, um, I, I well, if anyone's listening to this, I, I advise you just to keep doing the same protocols. Keep your mask on, wash your hands, sanitize, bathe when you get home. You should be doing that either way, y'all think so? <laughs> <laughs> should not have taken a pandemic. But um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not very hopeful about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I take, I take note of everything you guys said just now, but I don't really have anything to say about it rather than I'm just very disillusioned right now. Yeah. And that, that pretty
0: much describes Spectrum politics as a team. Um, I want to put out a little bit of a clarion call as we end this episode, right? So we know that the election is over, but the work of covering our politics and breaking it down in a way that particularly young people can understand continues. But it's a lot of work. And if you've been listening to this podcast for months, if you've been following us on Twitter and interacting with us, and you feel like you have something to contribute and say, I don't, we don't care what political party you're from or if you're in a political party at all, reach out to us. Send us a DM. I know um, certain persons who have done so already, and I really thank you for that. We're trying to find ways to to do this work more effectively. And, you know, if you got some cash on the side, it, we'll take that too. It'll help us be better at what we do. So I just want to thank everybody for listening and being patient with us as we kind of get back on our feet and figure out what spectrum politics is going to be for the next few years at the beginning of... Uh, uh, Tate, I'm so mad at you for what you type in the jackets. you you, you caused me to go all the way off track, but, but, but seriously, we are, are trying to be our best selves for you and for this country that we all love and have to live in. So if you have any suggestions, any help that you can offer in that quest, we'd very much appreciate it. But thank you for listening. Thank you for everything. And we'll talk again soon. You didn't get to speak at the end there. So any other thoughts you want to leave with the viewers, the listeners,
2: you know, I I, I want to say, I think this is important. Um, and I think that the conversations that we're going to have within the year and the content we're going to produce in the, in the coming months is going to be so great. And it's more so important Because of what's happening in the journalistic course so we need more conversations we need more people to contribute to these conversations we need national discourse and so i'm looking forward to the work that spectrum will do in the coming months and uh, if anybody wants to contribute to that please come and we will not uh deny you that um in certain circumstances but hey come along let's have a conversation and let's try to make the bahamas a better place
0: well said bro and uh pop a mint that one's from that one is from Benzo. <laughs> Thanks a lot for listening guys. We're signing off for today. My name's Ben Jason Burnin here with co-hosts Kate Adderley and Benzo Hazard. Keep listening and keep up the good work.